Before we move forward this morning, I want to remind you of a couple of things. One is graduate recognition. Pastor Mike has said to us many times, parents and grads, sign up, sign up, sign up, get ready for June 5th and grad recognition. Our guest speaker will be our own Alex Gore, who grew up in this church, came up through Pastor Mike's youth group, and went on to things God wants him to do, uh, and he'll be back with us for grad Sunday. Uh, also, as Pastor Mike already mentioned, parent-child dedication next week, sign up for that. And this is new news to you, but it's very important. Next Sunday morning, following the worship hour, we will have a very brief, brief called business conference to hear a motion from the Budget and Finance Committee that we create a Ukraine relief fund. Now, this fund will have very specific perimeters. We'll tell you about that next Sunday morning. Uh, but we need you here, especially our members, to participate in person in that. If you're online, we, we do not live stream uh, the business, any business meetings or conferences, and that's what this will be. So just for our members, want to let you know, be here next Sunday morning and then stay a few minutes afterward to consider this recommendation. Well, the last two weeks have some, seen some of the most upheaval in our culture that we've seen in a while, especially that which distinguishes followers of Christ and those who believe in life uh, from the pro-abortion industry and those who have a culture of death and promote a culture of death. And you couldn't ask for more distinction. And uh, our, our culture, as we're going to talk about in the series, is becoming more and more hostile toward believers and toward a biblical faith and people of faith uh, as well. Last week on Mother's Day, while you and I were here enjoying and celebrating moms and Mother's Day, uh, there were churches from L.A. to New York City who had protesters outside and even inside those churches on Mother's Day protesting the position of life, uh, protesters that were making a stand for death and for abortion. Uh, they are now explicitly targeting Christianity and churches. That's not especially new uh, but there is an uptick and increase in our culture that distinguishes worldviews and ideologies in our culture. This past week, uh, the mayor of New York City said in a press conference, uh, in answer to a question, he said, yes, he would support abortion until birth under any and all circumstances. Let that sink in for just a minute. He would support abortion until birth, until the moment right before that baby is born. It's a culture of death that clashes with a culture of life. And Christianity and the gospel is all about life, hope, resurrection. Jesus Christ brings the gospel and the good news. My point is we're seeing more and more hostility in our culture. And the, and the Bible teaches this hostility will grow. And we're going to seek to live for Christ in an increasingly hostile culture. We're going to start this morning in a message series in the book of Daniel. If you have your Bible, go ahead and find the book of Daniel in your Old Testament, mark your place there, and in fact, keep your mark there because this is where we'll be for the next several Sundays going into the summer. If you're new to First Baptist Church, each summer, uh, we look closely into a character of the Old Testament, one of those uh, great leaders of the faith, and uh, we build our faith on their faith in Christianity. Uh, so we look into that more closely. Uh, now, this, this summer, we're starting a little bit earlier than we usually do. Because toward the end of the summer, we're going to switch gears and talk about heroes as we get ready for 9-11. If, if you don't already know it, 9-11 falls on a Sunday. 
in this September. So we're going to celebrate heroes as we get ready for 9-11. But right now, we're turning our attention to the book of Daniel. Uh, famous for the courage and, and a refusal to compromise, this young man, Daniel, uh, becomes a, uh, a role model for us in how to live his faith in a hostile culture, a place called Babylon. Uh, in just a moment, we'll get a little bit of history, but let me, let me put this in your, in your mind so you know what, what's happening, why Daniel is there. Uh, this is the year 605 B.C., over about 600 years before Christ. This is the nation of Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And we're going to meet the greatest ruler of his age, a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon was the wealthiest nation in the world at the time with the greatest army and the greatest ruler, a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And as we'll see, Nebuchadnezzar sweeps down, he conquers the people of Israel, and he carries a host of them back to Babylon in what became known as the exile in Scripture. Uh, and many of the books of the Old Testament uh, come along at the same time as the book of Daniel. We're just looking at different people along the way. But we're going to look at uh, the book of Daniel, and we're going to start this series this morning as we consider how to live for Christ in a hostile culture. What I want you to have tucked away in your mind throughout this series is very simple. It's very simple. God is in charge. No matter what's happening in our culture, no matter how hostile the culture becomes toward us, toward our faith, toward you, God is always in charge. And the Bible always confirms that those who live for Christ, those who are faithful to Christ in all situations and circumstances, will experience the faithfulness of God to them. So put that away, tuck it away in your mind, and keep it in mind as we go into the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 this morning. This is what the Bible says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed over King Jehoiakim of Judah to him, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. Uh, they were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, as the book opens, the second verse sets the tone for the whole book. Uh, and it's, that's intentional. It's designed so we understand, before we get any further, we understand what this book is really about and that God is in charge. Now look at verse 2 again. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the name for God there translated the Lord is Adonai. Now in the English language, uh, we translate what are, in fact, in Hebrew, several different names for God. We typically translate those with just the word Lord or the word God. But this is a particular word, a particular name for God, Adonai. It means God is sovereign. In other words, right at the outset, we are to understand that God is the true king in this story. 
Uh, not Nebuchadnezzar. Though he was great among kings of his day, he was not greater than God. And because through the story, it's going to appear that Nebuchadnezzar is in charge, that Nebuchadnezzar is calling the shots, that Nebuchadnezzar is the one uh, that can't be defeated. But what we learn at the outset is that God is the sovereign. He is the king. He's the king over all creation, and he is the king over this situation. That's the tone of the book of Daniel. And as Daniel intersects with God, and as Daniel participates in this hostile culture of Babylon, he learns more and more that God is king. As he trusts God in every situation, he learns that God is sovereign. And that God is always faithful to those who are faithful to him. We live in a hostile culture. That, that's no different. But that, that hostility is going to grow. Jesus told us this would happen. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus taught his own disciples and passed along to us that whole culture would become more and more and more hostile as we near the end of time and the close of history and Christians would bear the brunt of that hostility. What we're to learn in the book of Daniel is that that doesn't mean that God has given up. It doesn't mean that God has turned his back on us or walked away. Instead, it shows us that God is still in charge and it shows us that he was always faithful to those who are faithful to him in every circumstance, in every situation. As with Daniel, like us, God wants to glorify himself through us. When we're faithful to him, people get to see God work, even in a hostile environment. People see what it's like to walk with Christ in every situation. You may be facing hostility even now at work. Uh, you may be facing it in your family. It's not anything new for people to be hostile toward you because you're a Christian. But the tide is turning toward increasing hostility in our culture as well. And we need to understand that and be ready for that. This morning for the next few minutes as we open this series, I want us to consider three truths to keep in mind about God's perspective on our culture. Even as it appears the culture is becoming more hostile and sometimes appears that God is not in charge, that God's not at the helm, that God has left us behind, that by appearances is wrong. God is in charge. And we want God's perspective on our situation. We want God's perspective on our culture and what is happening to us and happening to our culture. So uh, just quickly this morning, I want you to consider with me these three truths, three things to remember from God's point of view. The first one is that God knows the times. God knows the times. We read uh, this chapter open, the book opens, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. For a, the Bible teaches that for a hundred years God has been warning his people that if they did not come back to him, if they were not faithful to him, they would face a judgment of some kind for a hundred years. And it has played out in the culture step by step and in the world history step by step. In the 700s B.C., uh, Assyria swept down into the northern kingdom of Israel, decimated the northern kingdom, took hundreds of thousands of people off into exile, and then transplanted there in the northern kingdom the people they wanted to be there. The result of that, if you fast forward to the New Testament 700 years later, those are the Samaritans that Jesus would meet. Uh, we know in the New Testament as the Samaritans in the northern kingdom. As time passes, God keeps telling the people through his prophets to get right with him, to trust him, 
to stop trusting other nations that serve other gods, and they would not listen. And the Bible teaches he directly told King Jehoiakim that he should turn to him and trust him, but instead King Jehoiakim became a puppet to Egypt. And the Egyptians were actually, through Jehoiakim, were ruling over Palestine and Judah around 600-605 B.C. So God made good on his promise. And God permitted Babylon to come into Judah. He permitted Nebuchadnezzar to have access. That's the important point of verse 2. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. This wasn't an accident of history. This didn't mean that God had forgotten his people. It didn't mean that God had no idea this was going to happen. God is the one. The Lord, the sovereign king, is the one that decided now was the time to make good on his promise. The people of God were ignoring him. The people of God, their king, their only king at the time, was turning his back, taking up refuge with Egypt instead of with God. So God permitted the Babylonians, to sweep down into southern Palestine. And the Bible very succinctly says they laid siege to Jerusalem. Now in the ancient world, that means they encircled the city of Jerusalem, the capital, the holy city, and they completely took over the city. They cut off water, they cut off food supplies until the people would have no choice but to surrender. And then Nebuchadnezzar, winning that battle, took off thousands of Israelites into Babylon, slaughtered many more, and left many there. But here we are again. The entire opening to the book of Daniel is to remind us that God is the one orchestrating history. God is the one in charge. Kings may think they're in charge, but God is orchestrating history, and God can use anyone in history to fulfill his purposes. The hand of God is always behind history. And God is always gracious, and the people of God shall always be faithful. And you say, well, why doesn't God make it easy for us? Why does God permit wars and violence and, and things like this? Because God wants us to turn to him. God wants us to be faithful to him in every circumstance, in every situation. And the thing about it is, if you look into the Bible, you can never say, well, I didn't know this was going to happen. God tells us all the time, if we are not faithful to him, there will be consequences. And God tells us throughout Scripture that history is moving toward a particular course, a direction that he is orchestrating. He knows what's going on, and he knows what's happening. So God knows the times. Don't ever feel like God has abandoned you. Don't ever feel like God has abandoned us. No, God knows the times. And the beauty of it is that God can use us, and he can work in any time in any history, and in any point in your life if you're faithful to him. That brings me to the second truth we need to remember. God uses the culture. God actually uses the culture for his agenda. It may look to us like the culture is chaotic, the culture is falling apart. It may feel to us like we're in Babylon, we're in exile, we're in a place we don't belong. But God uses the culture. He uses the culture to advance his will, his agenda, to advance history the way he likes. We read it in verse 2. He took Jehoiakim of Judah, he overcame him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. 
And then the Bible says Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now go back to the end of verse 2. We are told he took vessels, that is, he plundered the gold from the temple in Jerusalem, from the house of God. He plundered that gold. And we're told it's from the house of God. Very literally in that language, the phrase is from the house of the God, the one true God. And then we're told he took that plunder off to Babylon and he installed it in the places of worship of his gods. Not the true God, but of his gods. Now in the ancient world, uh, when one nation conquered another, they viewed it as their god or gods conquering that nation's god. That's how they viewed it. It wasn't just a military victory, uh, it was a divine victory. And they believed it meant that their gods were on their side if they were able to conquer another nation that worshipped a different god. The people of the ancient world were very rarely atheists or non-religious. But they worshipped pagan gods in often vile ways. And Nebuchadnezzar, to prove his point, plunders the very house of God in Jerusalem and takes artifacts with him back to Babylon. Because in his mind and in the mind of the world, that means that he has conquered the Jewish God. He has won not only a victory against Jehoiakim, he has actually won a victory against the God of Israel. That's what he thinks. But God works in every circumstance to insert himself in history as he orchestrates it to be. The world's perspective is that Nebuchadnezzar has won and defeated the Jewish God. What's God's perspective? God's perspective is that Nebuchadnezzar has just taken evidence of the God of Israel all the way to Babylon, Babylon, and every time a person sees the evidence of God in Jerusalem, they will be reminded there is but one true God. God has just inserted himself in Babylon, by his design, he has orchestrated this so that Nebuchadnezzar would take with him evidence of the one true God. And God has a way of doing that. He inserts himself in a culture that thinks they're in charge. He inserts himself right in front of the people that think they're in charge. Uh, remember Moses and Pharaoh. God, using Moses, inserts himself right in front of Pharaoh until finally Pharaoh gives in and lets the people of God go from Egypt. Remember Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate, Jesus Christ himself, standing in front of Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate says to him, I have authority over life and death. I have the authority to have you crucified. And Christ, being in charge in the moment as God is, he said, you don't have any authority that my Father hasn't given you. To the world, it appears that the world is winning. But through the eyes of faith, we know God's in charge. We know God's in charge. And God even uses the culture to his advantage, to promote his agenda, to advance his will. It may seem like chaos in our culture, but you can know that God is at work. And when you're faithful to him, God is always faithful to you. God is in charge. And then third, third thing to remember is God prepares his people. Believe it or not, God prepares his people for the times that we live in. He doesn't take it to chance. He gives you and I opportunity to be ready and to prepare for the times we live in. If God brought you to a new job, God prepared you for that new job. If God talked, talk, uh, took you to a new school, a new place of education, moved you to a new subdivision, God has been preparing you for that. If you've been faithful to him, God is faithful to you. 
Uh, for those who follow Christ, there are, not, are no accidents of history. We trust him with our lives. We trust him with the progress of our lives. And we know that God is guiding our lives to where he wants us to be and what he wants us to do. Uh, one of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, key design features, one of his strategies was to take thousands of these Israelites from Judah and take them into exile in Babylon. Slaughter many that were there, and then, as many dictators in the ancient world would do, he would import them, uh, import other people into the area he had just conquered. Now, the Bible here in the book of Daniel was focused on this exile, this transport of people out of, ba out of Judah and Jerusalem into Babylon. That's the focus here. Because Daniel is among the thousands that were transported into exile. And when they're transported there, uh, Nebuchadnezzar tells his chief in command that he wants Ashpenaz. By the way, Ashpenaz is a great name. Scholars believe it means horse nose. Bless his heart. But he tells Ashpenaz, his chief in charge, that from this group of people that have been brought to Babylon, Babylon, he should single out a select group of young men. And notice the criteria. I want you to look at this with me. The criteria uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has for the young men that will be singled out because they're going to be trained and taught in the ways of Babylon. Uh, they're going to be immersed in the culture of Babylon and the education of Babylon so they can serve the king of Babylon the rest of their lives. There's no going home for them. Listen to the criteria. First of all, they would be of nobility and royalty. Notice how much this would thin the herd, so to speak. It would trim down the prospects of who qualifies. The very first thing that Nebuchadnezzar wants, and he wants young men who have the blood of kings of Judah. Uh, secondly, he wants them to be physically attractive. Now, I know that sounds awfully shallow, but there's two reasons for that in the ancient world. The first reason was physical attraction was associated with uh, moral purity. An unblemished person meant that they were people of character. But there's a very practical reason for it, and that's because at the end of their training, these young men would serve the king in his court. In other words, he wanted attractive people standing in his court all day because that proves that he is authoritative. He has control over everyone, and he picks the people that will stand in his court. The third criterion was that they would be already proven to be discerning and wise, uh, that they would be uh, able to, to apply what they learned. That means they were already immersed in teaching. They were already educated, especially if they were nobility from Judah. And then the third thing is, Therefore, they were teachable and capable of learning the language of the Babylonians, that is, the Chaldeans. Uh, the point here is that God had already prepared these young men for this day in Babylon. He'd already pre prepared them with the character to stand firm and not to compromise. He'd already prepared them with the opportunity to be trimmed down, to be picked out, to be in places of service, and to be in places of prominence. He knew, God knew what he was doing. And he wanted Daniel and his three friends exactly there at that time to influence the culture. For three years, they would be immersed in study in Babylon. For the rest of their lives, they would serve Babylon. And it's easy to think that right away they would lose their faith. 
that right away they would compromise, that right away uh, they would no longer stand for God or they would have some kind of watered-down faith, that they acknowledged the God of Judah but didn't really serve him. They served the God of Babylon. And as time went on, you would think that would become more and more the case, that they, uh, they almost look like the culture and act like the culture and, and seem to be Babylonians. That's what you would think because that's what happens in America. <laughs> that's what happens in American churches all the time. And to put a finer point on it, when these young men were carted off to exile in Babylon, they would have been about 13 years old, 12, 13, 14 years old, because at 14 years old is when this training would have begun in their culture. So by 17 or 18 years old, they would have begun serving the king of Babylon. They would have learned the language. They would have learned the ways. They would have eaten the food. They would have been pressed to compromise in every circumstance. Parents, I want you to think about your children right now, especially your middle schoolers. Did you know a study came out in March that showed only 4% of professing Christian parents, only 4% possess a biblical worldview. That means they know, understand, and apply the distinctives of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Only 4%, 96% of parents who claim to be Christians in America have no idea what the Bible actually teaches. And it gets worse. Only 2% of parents of middle schoolers, 2%, possess a biblical worldview. They understand the Bible and they know how to live it. Only 2%. No wonder our kids are absorbed into the culture. No wonder they're becoming more and more like the culture around us instead of more and more like Christ. These young men, when when they went to Babylon, 14 years old. Middle schoolers. What made the difference for them? We're told right away. It's the undercurrent of the passage. They had already been raised in a community of faith. Like-minded believers. For 14 years, they had learned who God is. For 14 years, they had been immersed in the scriptures of their God. For 14 years, their parents had been faithful to take them to synagogue. For 14 years, they had people all around them all the time that prayed, that loved them, that walked with them through difficulties and trials. For 14 years, they had learned to be respectful to parents and to all of their relatives alike. For 14 years, they had been submerged in the right culture. That's why they were ready for Babylon. Parents, let that sink in. Let that sink in. Do you really think Once a week for 45 minutes is the way to raise your kids into faith. Do you really think, ask yourself right now, is your child ready for Babylon? Because that's where we're headed. God prepares his people when his people acknowledge him and serve him. Growing in faith, growing to be faithful, learning the Word of God and applying it, growing up in a community of faith so that you're ready. You're ready when the culture turns hostile against you. Are you ready for that? Are we ready for that? Next week, we'll pick up there as we'll learn more about these young men from Judah who were taken off to Babylon immersed in a culture that was hostile to their faith and how they gained a reputation for no compromise in that culture, not compromising their faith, 
literally risking their lives, risking it all, to serve God in a place they never thought they would be, a place their parents never thought they could possibly be. But they were prepared for it. And they trusted that God was in charge and that God was guiding history and that God knew what he was doing. I like to watch the Kentucky Derby. I don't know about you. I like to watch the Kentucky Derby. Three minutes once a year out of my life. I can do that. And one of the main reasons I watch the Kentucky Derby is because if I don't, I'll miss something like what happened two weeks ago. Did you see that? Rich Strike is the name of the horse. Rich Strike wasn't even supposed to be there. Uh, He was number 21 for a field of 20. And horse number 20 was scratched right before the Kentucky Derby. And suddenly, Rich Strike was in the Derby. And he was in the Derby with the third worst odds in Kentucky Derby history. 80 to 1. Nobody thought he should be there. Nobody thought he should win. And his jockey had never ridden in a Kentucky Derby. Never even been there before. Now, I don't know if you know a whole lot about horses or horse racing, but that's a big field of horses. That's a lot of horses. In a mile and a quarter race, that's a lot of thoroughbreds, a lot of running. If you watch the race, watch it again from the aerial view. There's an aerial video circulating online. And you watch Rich Strike in the back of the pack. He ran at about number 18 for almost the entirety of the race. Then as if suddenly he woke up, he starts moving forward. And weirdly, other horses start getting out of the way. And here comes Rich Strike. The two men calling the race didn't even notice him. They had no idea he was coming up. All they're doing is focusing on the two in front. The favored to win and the one challenging the favored to win. That's what they're focusing on. That's what they're focusing on. And then suddenly, as if they just woke up, oh my goodness, there's Rich Strike. As he passed the favored to win and won the Kentucky Derby. You know, when I saw that, my first thought was, isn't it interesting? Nobody told him he wasn't supposed to win. (laughs) He didn't know he wasn't supposed to win. He didn't know he wasn't supposed to be there. He just got out there and did what he was trained to do. Now, it helps a little bit to know that that Kentucky Derby was running at a blistering speed, a blistering pace. And thoroughbreds are not designed for endurance. They're designed for speed. And and they were getting tired. They were wearing out. But the thing about it is, Rich Strike and his jockey saw that, and they just took advantage of that as well. Just weave in and out of, of all these guys that have been pressing themselves so hard. And they came out on top. The moral of that story, if I can give you one, God already knows what race he's preparing you for. And if you have faith in him, nobody else in that race can defeat you. God knows why you're there. Trust him. It may be the worst place you've ever been in your life. It may be your Babylon. It may be the biggest surprise. You had no idea you would be here. But the one thing that will always hold true is God is in charge. And he knew you would be there at this place in time. God will take care of you. He's in charge. Run the race with him. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. 
This morning, I want to invite you to respond to him. It could be that you are in a very difficult place. It could be that you're pressed on all sides by the hostile culture. It could be that you're afraid of where we're going in this culture. I want to pray with you to trust him. I want to pray with you to give him your problems, your stress, your strain. I want to pray with him that we will trust him for what comes next. Because he knows where you are. He knows what's going on. And maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. In a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer with you. It's a very simple prayer that I pray with everyone. To put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It acknowledges that we are sinners in need of a Savior, which you need to do. You need to say honestly to God, I know that I'm a sinner. I've been disobedient to you. And then it acknowledges that Christ is the only way to be saved. And we put our faith and our trust in him. So if you're in this room or at home this morning and you've never trusted Christ, in just a moment I want to invite you to pray that prayer with me and put all your faith and trust in Jesus today. Let him forgive you of your sins. Start over and live a new life in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pause in this moment, God, acknowledging your sovereignty. You are the Lord Adonai, the sovereign king over all of history and all of creation. And God, sometimes it looks like to us that everything's chaos. Everything's out of hand. We wonder, God, where are you? What's happening? And then, God, we are reminded you know what's going on, God, and you know where we are as well. So, Father, we pray for our culture and our world. We pray, God, that you would protect us and walk with us in this hostile culture. And we pray, God, we would be faithful to you. We'd be faithful to you in all that we do. Father, I pray especially for those of us in this room and at home who feel like we've just been inserted into Babylon. We, we are in a very hostile and difficult place, a stressful place in our lives, God. Father, we thank you for this reminder that you are in charge. You know what's going on. God, how we praise you and thank you. So I pray for all of us, God, we would give you our issues, our stress, our problems, our situation. We give that to you, God, because we know that you are in charge. You know what's going on. And God, we also know that you have prepared us for wherever we are. And you can use us in this situation to glorify yourself. Let the world see Jesus working in us, God. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, God, where we have even thought for a moment that you're not in charge. And Father, we, we might be afraid. Maybe that's our, maybe our fear. We're afraid right now of what's happening in our culture or in our own lives. But God, we give that fear to you. We know, God, we can trust you that you are faithful to us always, just as your word says. So I pray for all of us, God, our burdens, cares, concerns, the circumstances we find ourselves in. Whatever it is, God, we give that to you today. And God, I pray for those in this room or at home that have never trusted Christ but would do that today, Father, to be forgiven of their sins. I pray this prayer with them. And ask God that by faith they would pray with me, Father, putting all their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I can't save myself. I've tried, God. I've been religious, God. I've tried to be good, but nothing has changed. So God, I ask this morning that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, for my sins. And I believe, God, that He's alive today, and I put all my faith and trust in the only one who can save me, the one who is in charge, the King of all creation, the great I Am, Jesus Christ. I put all my faith in Him to forgive me and save me and give me a brand new life. Father, for all of us today, God, I pray the Holy Spirit would be at work in us 
and that we would respond to you, God, as you're calling us to do. And it's in Jesus' precious name we